chapter 9. Hear God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us, the Bible. And thank you for this particular passage of your word We're eternally and totally dependent upon the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this passage and then to apply it to our lives, Lord. So we pray that your Spirit would use this passage today to equip us and change us and transform us by the gospel, that we might be more like Jesus and might serve you more faithfully this week and in the future. We give you our hearts, our heads, our ears, our minds, our eyes. Use this time, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is great to be back. Thank you so much. I've just really come to enjoy being with you all and meeting you and getting to know you better and sharing God's Word. And you might have thought, well, this is an unusual passage of Scripture. I I suspect that some of you have never uh, read this chapter in 2 Samuel. Uh, Who was Mephibosheth? And if I can make it through this sermon saying that name as often as I'm going to have to say it, it's a tongue twister, right? Um, Who is Mephibosheth and what is David doing here and and, uh, Ziba and what's what's going on? Okay, I'm going to try to explain it all to you this morning. 
And this will be a tremendous passage to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table a little, a little later. When I come down here to Vero Beach, I've gotten in a habit. Now, I guess this is the, I don't know, fifth time I've been here perhaps, fifth or sixth. And uh, I always stop at Panera at Palm Bay, the exit there, and just grab a little bite to eat before I arrive here. So this morning I did that. And I sat at my table and I had quite a treat because soon after I arrived, a father and his daughter arrived at Panera and sat down and they had breakfast together. This little girl seemed to be about four years old. She was just as cute as can be. I mean, it, she just looked like a, 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 a picture uh, walking right past me and sitting at this little table with her father. And I was so taken by the scene. I just watched this father relate to his daughter. He kept his eyes on her so much of the time. He would help her with her bagel. He would spread the uh, cream cheese on her bagel. He laughed with her. He talked with her. And that little girl was just taken up with her father's love. Now, I don't know anything about their story, but one thing that I, that I took away from that scene was was the, the very fact that this little girl, if there's anything she knew, it was that she mattered to her father. If there's anything that happened in that little encounter between her and her dad, it was that my daddy thinks I'm great. And you know, there's something about that that appeals to us. Even as I share that story, I think your hearts are saying, yes, that is so, so important. You know, as a pastor, there have been many times when somebody, a church member, was not in church on not just one Sunday, not just two, but three or more Sundays in a row. Maybe they were sick. Maybe they were on vacation traveling. Maybe they were upset with something. I don't know. But then I'll run into this person in the grocery store or they'll send me an email. And we'll have this little conversation and they'll say, Mike, why didn't you call to check up on me? Have you ever had this experience? You've been away from church several weeks in a row and no one checked up on you. No one called. And so often, to my embarrassment, I must admit to you that I've had this this exchange with people. They'll say, Mike, why didn't you or someone else call to check up on me? And I'm I'm tempted in that moment to say, well, give me a break. How, how am I supposed to know, you know, in a large church that you've been away for two or three or four weeks in a row? How, how can you expect me to know all of that? But I... I'm trying to be a good pastor, so I zip my mouth and I don't say that. I bite my tongue and what do I do? I apologize because I understand. People need to know that they matter. C.S. Lewis wrote a little essay called The Weight of Glory, which I hope all of you would read. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says that we all have a longing to be acknowledged, to be, he says, on the inside of some door that we have always seen from the outside. And he goes on to say that when someone acknowledges you, when someone communicates to you that you matter, it's like the healing of an old ache. That's his phrase. I chose this passage today because... Even though I only know a few of you and not very well, I know that we have at least this one thing in common. 
We come from a lot of different places. We've had a lot of different experiences. But you know what? There's one thing that unites us all. We all have an old ache. We all need to be acknowledged. We all need to know that to somebody, we matter. Especially to God, right? Especially that we matter to Him. Because there is something deep within the human heart, this longing to be known and loved and accepted, especially by God, the one who made us for himself. And so this morning's story is going to tell us how to know that we matter to God. All right, so if you're ready, this morning I'm going to bring you three things I'm going to talk a little bit about a mangled man and then a kind king and finally a gracious God. So that's our plan. Let's dive in. Let me start by helping you get our bearings. I said that maybe some of you have not even read this passage of Scripture before. Maybe you've never heard a sermon about it. Well, first of all, let me set the stage. Saul, King Saul, many of you know that name. He was the first king of Israel. And he is now dead, so he is no longer on the scene. Instead, David is king of Israel, and all of Israel is behind him. If they had approval ratings back in this time period, David's approval index would be hovering right around 100%. I mean, you know, you don't have that happen in U.S. politics, do you? But David was a man widely acclaimed by his people. They loved him a lot. The Ark of the Covenant that you've heard so much about, it's now in Jerusalem. David has subdued his enemies. He has appointed his advisors. At the end of the previous chapter, it says that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So you might say that it was morning in Israel when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And at this point in history, most monarchs would get busy putting together their policies, their domestic agenda, their foreign policy. But David does something different. He does something very unusual. It says that he calls in one of Saul's servants, and his name was Ziba, Z-I-B-A. And David says to him there in verse 3, Ziba, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him? The kindness of God. I want you to really pay attention to that word kindness. It's going to come up a lot in this chapter and in my sermon. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed, and it means grace. Or free, unmerited, unearned favor. And so David says to Ziba, is there not still someone left from Saul's family to whom I can show the chesed, the grace, and the undeserved favor of God too? And Ziba says in verses 3 and 4, well, yes, there is one. There is one orphan left from Saul's family. He's living in low Debar, he says, in the home of a fellow by the name of Machir, and his name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a very mangled man. That's the first thing we want to see here. He is a very mangled man. What I mean is that he is very broken. He has a number of huge strikes against him. For example, think about his name, that tongue twister that I 
have told you about. You know what it means? It means one who scatters shame. How would you like to have the word shame as a part of your name? Get that. Shame is a part of Mephibosheth's identity. It's been a major theme of his life. How tragic, right? Second, think about his family. Mephibosheth was the only son of Jonathan. Now there's a name I suspect many of you have heard. Jonathan, who was son of Saul. And Jonathan was also, what? David's best friend. They were very, very close friends. But Mephibosheth was King Saul's grandson. Now Saul was a disgraced, ungodly man. Mephibosheth would be forever branded as a descendant of unfaithful Saul. Furthermore, Mephibosheth's parents had both been murdered by Philistines. That's one of Israel's big enemies. So Mephibosheth was an orphan, you see. He had no home of his own. The text says that he was staying at the home of a friend in a town on the other side of the Jordan River called Lodabar. Lodabar means, in other words, Lodabar was then a non-Jewish town. It was far away from Jerusalem where the presence of God was located, right? The Ark of the Covenant. Lodabar was a non-Jewish town on the other side of the Jordan. And do you know what the word Lodabar means? Hebrew word, it means no thing. Nothing. (laughs) How would you like to be from a town called nothing? Nothing, Florida. Well, that's Mephibosheth's uh, hometown. I, I, I was curious, and so I looked up in, uh, online on Google uh, some awful town names. Did you know that there is a place in Kentucky called Disappointment? <laughs> and there's, believe it or not, a town in Michigan called Hell. How would you like to be from Hell, Michigan? Well, <laughs> Mephibosheth was from nothing. Says a lot about his... Identity, doesn't it? Again, his name, shame. His town, nothing. Thirdly, think about Mephibosheth's poverty. Verse 7 indicates that he had lost everything he had. He had no land. He had no house. He had no servants. He had no crops. All the property that he had had as a descendant of Saul had been confiscated. So he had nothing to offer David. His accounts were all overdrawn. He was penniless. If there had been food stamps in Israel at this time period, Mephibosheth would have been on them. Finally, think about his disability. This is one of the most obvious things about Mephibosheth. Verse 3, David asks Ziba, Is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show this chesed, this kindness of God? And then Ziba's reply is, Well, yeah, there is still this son of Jonathan... And then you can almost hear Ziba saying, but you don't want him because he's crippled in his feet. See, we're talking here about a disabled person. You know people with disabilities. This is one. He was disabled. You see, what happened was, and you have to read back in 2 Samuel 4 to find this out, when Mephibosheth was five years old, his nurse 
who was carrying him at the time, accidentally dropped him. She was running away from the Philistines who had just killed uh, Mephibosheth's parents. Running away, and he, she dropped Mephibosheth to the ground, and his legs were permanently damaged. You, you say, well, that's too bad. No, that was very bad. Very bad. Back in this time period, to be lame was to be labeled unclean. Lame animals were unacceptable as sacrifices. Lame people could not serve as priests. Over in the New Testament, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time with disabled people, didn't he? But for that, he was criticized. Because good Jews, good rabbis don't mix and mingle with disabled people. So there was a stigma attached to being handicapped like Mephibosheth was. I suspect, what do you, what do you think? When Mephibosheth was a child and he had these friends around him, do you suppose they called him names? Hey, look at retard over there. Look at the crippled boy. Hurry up, Mephibosheth. Run, Mephibosheth. So you get the picture, right? No wonder Mephibosheth calls himself in verse 8 a dead dog. What a, what a low amount of self-esteem it would be for you to call yourself a dead dog. He's been labeled and bullied and insulted all his life. His family is hated by all Israel. He's poor, he's homeless, and above all, he is disabled. He's a mangled man. But the beautiful thing about 2 Samuel 9 is that though he is a mangled man, David is a very kind king. So let's talk about David. What does David do in this chapter? Six things. Follow me as I walk you through what we see David doing toward Mephibosheth. First, he pursues him. He pursues him. He seeks him out. Because in verse 1 he says, is there not? See, he, 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 he knows there's got to be someone left of David's line, of Saul's line. I'm going to pursue him. And throughout this text you see him telling Ziba, where is he? Go get him. Bring him to me. David is not going to let anything stand in the way of pursuing Mephibosheth. He wants to show him kindness. There's that word in verse 1, the kesed or the grace of God for Jonathan's sake. Second thing David does is he calls Mephibosheth by name. And that's in verse 6. Look at that verse. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. Don't you love it when someone remembers your name? Isn't it great when someone doesn't just say, Hello, um, brother, (laughs) hello, sister, or something like that, but they know you by name. David calls him by name. Third, he reassures him. David uh, reassures Mephibosheth. He says in verse 7, Don't fear. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Now, why did David hasten? 
to reassure Mephibosheth that he was okay, that David wasn't going to do anything. Well, I suspect that Mephibosheth thought he was going to be executed. You know, he's over there in Lodabar, and a messenger comes and says, David, the king of Israel wants to see you, the lone survivor of the line of Saul. What's going to go through Mephibosheth's mind? I'm dead. I'm a dead man. I'm the last remaining person in Saul's family. David's king now. He wants to cleanse the land of Saul's memory. I'm dead. So David says, don't be afraid. You're okay. Don't fear. Fourth, instead of killing Mephibosheth, he does the virtual opposite. He restores his lost fortunes. Look at verse 7. He says, I will restore to you, Mephibosheth, all the land of Saul, your father. Now, this was a risky thing for David to do. Giving back Saul's land to his lone survivor might have encouraged Mephibosheth to try and take back the throne. But David took that gamble. He also, in verse 10, orders Saul's servant Ziba to wait on Mephibosheth hand and foot. And to do all these things for Mephibosheth. That probably was a big surprise to Ziba. Okay, there's four things. Number five, not only that, and here things get really unbelievable. David brings Mephibosheth into the royal family. Look at verse 7. David says, you, Mephibosheth, shall eat at my table always. Verse 11 goes on to say, that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. What does that mean? What does eating at the king's table signify? Well, back in this time period in Israel, to eat with somebody indicated intimate friendship. To share table with someone meant intimate fellowship. It was a sign of trust. It was a sign of covenant love. And this is not just anybody's table. This is the table of whom? The king of Israel, David, of all people. The mightiest sovereign of the ancient world. This was his table. What an unparalleled honor this would be for anybody, much less a man like Mephibosheth. It was outrageous. You will always eat at my table. And then sixth and finally, not only does David... Restore everything to Mephibosheth. Not only does he invite him to stay at his table and eat with him as his intimate friend, but the final thing is that David keeps Mephibosheth as his son. He keeps him as one of his sons. Look at verse 7, you will always eat at my table. Verse 10, he shall always eat at my table. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. How many times does God need to tell us something before we begin to see the reality of it here? David said, you're always going to be treated just like one of my sons. Okay, does this remind you of anything at all? (laughs) Of course. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This whole thing should remind you of the gospel because the gospel of Jesus is a lot like this story of Mephibosheth and King David. And let me tell you why. For those of you who are followers of Christ, before you became a Christian, and it might have been an instantaneous event or it may have been more of a gradual growth process, 
uh, coming to understand what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, maybe God converted you as a small child or maybe it's happened more recently. Who knows? But whatever the case, before you became a Christian, the Bible says that you were, quote, one who scatters shame. You were a sinner, lost and without hope. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you were one of them. At some time in your past, before you embraced Jesus, you were guilty. You were under the condemnation of God because you were a child of the devil, an enemy combatant of God, a sinner by birth and by choice. You were, we might as well say, from low to bar. You had nothing. We're going to sing the, rock of, uh, the hymn Rock of Ages in a little while. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You were from low to bar. All your righteous acts were like, what? Filthy rags, exactly. You lived outside the land of promise. You were far away from God and you lived that way. Just like Mephibosheth. And then you were crippled spiritually. No, wait. I take that back. You were worse. You were, as Zach said earlier today, you were dead spiritually. The Bible says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to please God, unable to save yourself, and unclean in His sight, just like Mephibosheth was. Unless God came to you by grace and in mercy, you could not go to Him. So your name was Mephibosheth, and so was mine. You were a hopeless, unwanted, sinful orphan. But one day... God called you to Himself and said, I want you to be in my family. He pursued you in Christ. You, individually. He was just like the shepherd of Luke 15 that you read about. You know the familiar story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 in the pen and goes out after the one lost sheep? You were one of those. He called you by name. His Spirit opened your heart and breathed life into it. And God said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're not going to be executed. I see you. I care about you. My heart goes out to you. I want to show you my chesed. My free, unmerited, unearned favor. And God restored your lost fortunes. He gave you back everything that sin took away from you. He gave you eternal life and hope and joy and peace and meaning and purpose. By the perfect life of Jesus, He declares you righteous. By the blood of the cross, He forgave your sins forever, like we read earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism. He set you free from condemnation. By His resurrection from the dead, He gave you a new kind of life. And now where is Jesus? He's in heaven praying for you pulling for you, loving you every single moment. And and, and God did all this not because you're good or obedient, because you're not, neither am I. He did it because of the covenant that He made with His Son, His Son Jesus, to redeem you out of your lost estate and bring you into the household of God. See what a great story this is in 2 Samuel 9? It's almost exactly the gospel just put in the form of an Old Testament story. 
You are no longer an abandoned, forgotten orphan. The Father has brought you into His family. He calls you His son or His daughter. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that you've been adopted. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Around the heavenly banquet table. At the wedding feast of the Lamb you're going to be one day. Do you understand then how much you matter to God? Do you see that God is saying to us through the gospel how much He loves you and how much you matter to Him? Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over you with singing. He takes delight in you and quiets you with His love. And this is true not just every now and then, not just when you're at church, not just when you're reading your Bible and being a good Christian, It's true always, now and forever. God has loved you, it says in Jeremiah 31, with an everlasting love. You're not going to go anywhere. Once God has you in His hand, He will never let you go. So this story is not just about a mangled man and a kind king. It's about a gracious God. God's grace to sinners is just like David's grace to Mephibosheth, only a lot better. Tell you a little story. Um, a few months ago, a young woman, and I'll call her Jenny, that's not her real name, but a young woman named Jenny came to see me. Jenny had abusive parents, and so DCF took her out of her parents' home, out of her biological home, and gave her to a foster home. thing about it is, the man, the foster dad, abused Jenny worse than her parents ever did. And so Jenny was put in another foster home. These parents were Christians, but they were very, very legalistic Christians, if you know what I mean. They lived by rules and imposed rigid rules upon Jenny that choked the life out of her. Whenever Jenny did something wrong, and here she is just like that little girl I saw at Panera this morning. Whenever Jenny did anything wrong, they would make her write Bible verses over and over and over and over again. When she did something really wrong, Jenny had to memorize entire chapters of the Bible and recite them word perfect. They took her to church three times a week. They did all those things that righteous Christians are supposed to do, but without any love, without any heart. And so by the time Jenny got to be 12 or 13 years of age, as you might guess, she was fed up with God. She didn't want to follow a God who was mad at her all the time, a God who made her feel shame. So what did she do? She learned other ways to find love and acceptance. She gave her body to every boy who came along, and then she turned to drugs and turned to alcohol. She spent nights in jail and on the street. It looked like Jenny was going to end up just another disaster, another statistic. Until a young couple, and I'll call them Joe and Alice, again, not their real names, they were looking for someone to adopt. To make a long story short, they were linked up with Jenny. They took her into their home and they gave her chesed. 
the kindness of God. And Jenny started walking the long road of recovery. She's not there yet, but she's going in the right direction. I know this story because Joe is a friend of mine and he told me about his adopted daughter, Jenny. And I said, do you think Jenny would ever care to come talk with a pastor? Because I knew, you know, what she thought of most pastors by now. And Joe Joe said, well, I'll ask her. Well, imagine my surprise when one day I got a phone call from Jenny. And she said, sure, Mike, I, I would enjoy meeting with you. So Jenny came to my office and you could tell she was really on pins and needles about being in a church. But she sat in my sofa and she told me much of the facts that I've shared with you. And I looked at Jenny at the end of that story and I said, you know, Jenny, God loves you very, very much. And Jenny, though I'm not sure it really sank in, she and I have been keeping in touch with each other and it seems that it is growing in her mind and in her heart that she can be an adopted daughter of God. So what should you do with this sermon? Well, I can think of two things, depending on where you are with God today. If you're not a Christian, and and maybe there is someone here today who is not a believer, and it's so wonderful that you're here in church. But if you're really not a Christian, you know what this story is? It's an invitation to you. An invitation to the only person in the universe who will ever truly love you unconditionally. You know, you're looking for love. You really are. No matter what you're doing, you're looking for love. But if you're not focused on Jesus, you're looking in the wrong places. You're trying to matter. You're trying to find significance. But if you're not trying to find it in God, if you're living apart from God over in low Debar, that significance is illusory. It's not going to last. Maybe the reason that you came to this church this morning is that God is saying, stop it. Stop living the way you're living. I'm calling you to live with me, to eat at my table and be my son or my daughter. Could I just ask you, don't say no. Don't say no to that invitation. Do what Mephibosheth did. Bring your brokenness. Bring your shame, bring your mistakes, bring your failures and your need and your lameness to Jesus. Go to the king's table. He'll show you kindness more than you've ever experienced in your life. If you are a believer in Jesus, and most of you are, you know what this is? It's an invitation for you as well. It's an invitation to give God's grace and God's kindness to others, especially those that the world deems unworthy. Now hear me out because this is so important for us who walk with Jesus and know Him. Maybe there's a Jenny in your life. Maybe there's someone who is hurting in your circle of influence and you don't know what you can do or should do for them. Maybe somebody has hurt you in the past. And instead of going to that person and having a hard conversation, you've just been simply avoiding them and trying to stay away from them. And you're tempted to just turn your back on that person and walk away. Or maybe God's been calling you to serve in a hard place, a place that is going to take tremendous courage and you don't know if you've got it, you know, got what it takes. 
2 Samuel 9 says that if you've received the grace of God, if you've received this kindness, how can you not give it away? You can give grace to others because Jesus, the Son of God, gave grace to you. Jesus made a covenant with you. He promised to love you forever. And as proof of that love, He stripped Himself of His robe of righteousness and gave it to you and took your sins and put them on Himself on the cross. And He says to you, you will always eat at My table just like one of the king's sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to me that you would do these things. That you would see people like me and like us. Some of us shaking our fists at you. And instead of executing us, instead of just forgetting us. You came to us in Christ. You pursued us and would not let us go until we were seated with you as one of your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, you're calling on us today from this passage of Scripture. For those in our midst who don't know you, you're saying, stop living over there away from me. Come to my table. Be part of my family. Put your trust in Jesus rather than in yourself. And for those of us who do know you, thank you that you're telling us, do you understand how much you matter to me? Now go and take that grace and give it away. Give it away to your enemies. Give it away to those who disagree with you. Give it away to those who are disabled, to those who don't matter much in the world's eyes. Be someone who will represent my grace in a very needy world. So Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. We pray that your Holy Spirit will let that grace now, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to thee and move us out of our safety and out of our comfort into a life of discipleship. Lord, we thank you so much for the body and blood of Christ. Thank you that we actually have an opportunity today to come to the table, the table of the King. We pray that we will feast with you and be amazed once again by your kindness and grace to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.